0: This podcast is brought to you by eGage Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGage is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGage can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and submetering. Learn more at eGage.net. For the week of August 28, 2014... This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., as usual. Catherine Hamilton, my co host, is also here in Washington, coming to us from her office at 38 North Solutions, a clean energy public policy consulting firm. Catherine, welcome back to D.C.
1: Thanks. It's great to be back. I'll miss the Scroon Lake Public Library, but it's good to be back in my nice, quiet office.
0: Good to have you back. You're not scrambling for internet anymore.
1: No, no. It's pretty, it, it really is a miracle that internet.
0: <laughs> and in New York City, it is Jigger Shaw. He's founder of Sun Edison and a newly soaked member of the ALS Challenge Club. Jigger, how was the 40th birthday party over the weekend? I take it the uh, bucket of ice water was involved exactly
2: but you know it was um it was only stage one now we've got the 30 family members are in town and so my actual birthday is august 30th so we're gonna do it right this weekend
0: oh lord (laughs) speaking of the als challenge um our gtm research team was targeted by sma yesterday very funny flash dance video with their mascot and uh, i'm not sure what our gtm research team is going to do but hopefully it's something worthy Catherine, have you been challenged yet
1: no, but I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> so there you go.
0: Oh, there it is. There've been a couple of good ones related to climate and energy. I saw the Solar Edge team did it at a solar array and challenged competitors Enphase and SMA, and then of course SMA challenged us. And then Leonardo DiCaprio and members of the Athabasca Chippewayan yeah, that's how you say it, Athabasca Chipewyan First Nation up in Canada used the fundraiser to talk about tar sands and challenged the CEO of Shell and the Canadian Prime Minister to do it. And then like a day later, Matt Damon did his with toilet water in order to send a message about saving water. So some creativity.
2: I liked it. I have to say this ALS challenge, I was skeptical at first, but it's it's gets grown on me. Yeah,
1: it's really cool. All
0: right, once again, I want to mention a couple of things. We are getting close to our Soft Grid conference in Menlo Park, California, and you can still sign up for that at our events page at greentechmedia.com. Of course, we're putting on a live show on September 22nd in New York City in partnership with Clean Energy Connections, and we'd love for you to be there to check out our conversation with some heavy hitters there in New York about Utility 2.0. We've got a link to the registration page in our podcast show notes and our site's events section. Okay, let's see what's on the docket for today. First up, we're going to chat about Bill Gates' take on energy access in developing countries, which Jigger roundly criticized in a recent piece. And Carl Pope responded to in a piece at Green Tech Media Today. Then we'll talk about a very important compromise in Mississippi that will bring lots of utility scale solar to the state. Finally, we'll talk about the latest developments in the battle to stop coal exports on the West Coast. And at the end of the show, we will tell you something you may not know. Bill Gates is a very influential guy, not just because of his stature as a giant in the early tech world, but because of his role at the Gates Foundation. With $53 billion in income, it is the biggest private foundation in the world, focusing on everything from global health, access to financing in developing countries, clean water access, and a whole host of other issues. So when Bill Gates goes to his blog and writes that developing countries can't afford renewable energy and that we need to push for more fossil fuels, that is very important. That gets burned into the minds of influential people. That's exactly what Gates did last week. When he promoted the work of Danish political scientist Bjorn Lomborg, saying we need more fossil fuels to fight energy poverty and more R&D to bring down the cost of renewables. Fossil fuels are the moral choice, argued Lomborg and echoed Gates. So I'm not going to lie, this got me a bit heated as Catherine and Jigger can attest to some of my emails. Um, Honestly, I don't usually get that emotional about this kind of thing because I do enjoy the the wide range of academic and economic disagreement and debate. But really by claiming that renewables are too expensive to deploy in developing countries, Gates was just flat out lying to himself in order to back up his belief that R&D We'll take care of the problem. So we're going to dig into some of the numbers behind what he claimed. And Jigger, we'll just start with you because of your op-ed. I could almost hear your frustration through the page when you wrote that response to Gates. Uh, What bother you most about this?
2: Well, I think the big challenge for me is that Gates is insinuating in his blog that clean energy isn't cheaper uh, in terms of providing stable, reliable energy to continents in Africa and countries like India and other places. And that's fundamentally wrong. And so by actually writing your piece in a way that basically just takes as a given that our stuff is too expensive to deploy – Really hurts us unnecessarily when he should be smart enough to actually be able to get the data, the latest data that's available. And forget solar and wind. Solar and wind are great and I love them. But think about like geothermal, which Kenya is looking to put in in mass, or biomass or small hydro. There's lots of technologies that have different characteristics
0: that aren't just solar and wind. Absolutely. And this just goes back to our criticism, our complaining are lamenting every single show that much of this analysis is based on old data. What gives?
2: Well, I mean, this is why we had, you know, and I've had such a visceral reaction to EIA. I think if EIA... Had you know, was able to put their big boy pants on and actually stop complaining about how hard it is to do their job and actually do their job well, they would actually be able to like help solve this problem because they're a reference that a lot of people use. But instead, their stuff's always two and a half years old, they're always using weird, manipulated data around no PTC or no ITC or no this or no that, and they complain about their charter. And then, you know, we've got to put all the good data on green tech media and other places, which people view as biased, even though it's not. Catherine, what was your response?
1: Yeah, um, it, also I had a somewhat visceral reaction. But, you know, when we have our EPA designing our uh, regulatory environment for greenhouse gases based on health impacts alone, and you look at health as, you know, as huge issue in developing countries and you know health organizations health clinics not having access to electricity and the ones that do If they have solar, it's 80% reliable. The ones that have diesel gensets, it's only about 50% reliable. So if you look at just the health impacts alone, it's surprising to me that Bill Gates, who cares so much about health and children's health especially, would want to have a world with increased fossil fuels. I also believe the reliability of uh, renewables, the speed at which you can put them out if it's distributed, and that you can do it now. I was um, looking at some of the things that the UN Foundation's um, Energy Access Practitioner Network, which has uh, over 1,700 members, they say that they're serving over 21 million people a year in developing countries with decentralized clean energy services. And, and there's a desperate need for more financing options, you know, debt and equity and grant programs. But this stuff is now. And if you look at trying to build centralized fossil fuel plants, that's just nutty.
0: I think that's what bothered me most about this analysis. It wasn't that Gates said, yes, we need some fossil fuels in, the, in developing countries to get people more access to energy. It was his outright dismissal with no backup that renewables are more expensive. And this is a guy who has called wind and solar cute. And he's continually dismissed commercially deployable renewables time and time again. And not only was I surprised by this because Gates has been so supportive of um, healthcare access in developing countries, but also because he's been instrumental in the push for mobile money services, too, which are enabling more solar and are part of this broader distributed trend that I think he seems to understand. And I'm not quite sure why he's dismissing renewables when he understands all these other elements to the push for renewables.
1: And he's taken big investment stakes in energy storage companies, too.
0: And his company, his former company, is basically powered by renewables now. And they're signing contracts for wind cheaper than any other type of energy they could procure.
2: It's so true. It's just, I mean, I really think we're on track to giving every single one of the 1.2 billion people around the world um, access to basic electricity by 2020. That's how close I think we are with d and Barefoot Power and MCOPA and Simpa Networks and all these other people. I just think we're so damn close. And for Bill Gates to basically say what he says, just it just irks me to no end. I mean, the World Bank has been trying to do what he's suggesting for 60 years. And then there's all this bad data out there around, well, in India, we've gone from 40% electrification to 75% electrification in the last 50 years, which is completely untrue, because what India does is just drops one connection at the village level and calls it electrified, but never bothers to do household electrification. So the houses are not electrified. They're not connected to the grid. It's just, you know, the um, like one person in the village just so they can, you know, check the box on some World Bank study.
1: Yeah, and some of the grids over there are so poorly run that just because you have a grid doesn't mean you actually have electricity at all.
2: So that's so true. I mean, it's like some people have a plug and no power coming to it. It's just, it's maddening for Bill Gates to like literally not read one relevant piece of information and as mouth off. I'm sure that he's actually just musing on his blog and doesn't know that he's actually negatively impacting thousands upon thousands of entrepreneurs.
0: All right, well, I want to walk through some of the numbers here. And then I want to talk about the need for centralized baseload energy for growing these economies, because I want to push back a little bit on the, the, the vision that somehow wind and solar can make up for the energy needs of these countries, even though that's not what people are necessarily claiming. So um, back in 2010, in a TED talk, Gates argued that we need to get CO2 for each unit of energy to zero. And he said, can we burn coal? no. Can we burn gas? He even said no. And he explained that what we need is energy miracles. So now all of a sudden he's saying that fossil fuel is absolutely needed. So what is this energy miracle brought by fossil fuels? Um, let's look at an example. In 2010, the World Bank approved a 375 billion dollar loan for the Madupi coal plant in South Africa. This 3.8 gigawatt plant, one of the biggest in the world, uh, could provide a quarter of South Africa's electricity. And so an update on the plant, four years on, the first nearly 800 megawatt unit of the coal plant is behind schedule and is still not online. Four years on. And so South Africa is still facing electricity shortages, problems that people have warned about for years. And many of the poorest communities still don't have access to a reliable grid or even a grid at all. And the cost, just like we've seen with large-scale new nuclear plants or mega coal plants, has risen, and it's gone up 15% to about $10.3 billion. So the cost, the levelized cost of energy from this plant is around uh, $0.09 a kilowatt hour. And what you see are wind contracts being signed in South Africa for $0.08 a kilowatt hour and continuing to drop. And last year, uh, GTM Research has been tracking some of the solar PV uh, contracts signed. We saw solar contracts at $0.10 a kilowatt hour, and that was down from $0.15 a kilowatt hour in 2012, the year before. This stuff is dropping dramatically, and projects are able to scale much faster than these large-scale plants. So to say... That renewables, like, say, solar or wind, are less competitive is simply false. Well, worse than that is that
2: those coal plants that South Africa is trying to build through ESCOM um, are actually solely for the mining industry. And so South Africa only has a 75% electrification rate. The other 25% of the people there are not electrified. So they could have spent $3.75 billion in a World Bank guarantee to actually electrify the rest of their population, but they chose instead to you know, be able to power the mining sector. And this is the big argument that keeps going back and forth is people say, well, the mining sector can't be powered by wind and solar. Well, maybe that's true, but this trickle-down impact where it's like, oh, yeah, you have to focus on job creation in these places by raping and pillaging the countryside for all of their natural resources to sell to the Western world, and that will somehow like bring people out of poverty, is BS. I mean, to suggest that that's happening in Equatorial Guinea or Cameroon or Mozambique or any of these countries is an outright lie. These mines are getting power, and nobody's getting real jobs locally. And they're not getting electrified in their homes.
1: Yeah, and I've talked to folks who are trying to develop renewable energy like big central plants, like geothermal plants in um, in Afri- other countries in Africa. And ESCOM is not interested at all in building out more transmission to serve service any of those other countries. They really aren't.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've let the electricity system languish for decades there in South Africa, and they're just now trying to do something about it. Um, And interestingly, going back to your point too, Jigger. I mean, 80% of South Africa's electricity is consumed by aluminum and mining industries. Um, But there was some pushback on the comment section, which I think you just addressed. And that was, how can we expect to develop industrial countries on the back of wind and solar? It just can't happen. Uh, Any more response to that? I think you roundly addressed it. Well, I think, so the other response to that is that when you think about Um, electrification
2: at the household and why people do it. A a large reason that they do it is USAID has a lot of statistics around the fact that people who get electrification at their home have a 64% increase in their household income. And that generally comes from the fact that you're empowering women. So women in general are used – in these countries to actually collect firewood, do all the foraging, all the things that they have to do, and giving them basic access to electricity gives them back six hours of their day which they then use to bring in income into their family. They also find that literacy rates are far higher in families that have basic basic electrification because for a lot of the children, they have to start working once they turn seven or eight years old. And so the only time they can learn how to read and write, et cetera, is at night when their agriculture duties are completed. And so there are these basic things that we've already learned through USAID and others that these other commenters are just, you know, forgetting about.
1: Yeah. And if you look at literacy, then suddenly you're in a place where you're not having just very low wage manufacturing jobs. You're actually getting people to become doctors and things that will allow them to have a higher income.
0: Mm -hmm. And often what you're talking about is putting these investments in the hands of entrepreneurs who can more efficiently and effectively get people to access energy services and create all sorts of other services on top of that, as opposed to putting these investments into the hands of bureaucrats to portion it out to politically connected companies and industries, which is what happens all the time. Uh, And then, you know, I feel kind of bad in this conversation sometimes being like a middle class white guy in Washington, D.C., attempting to come up with solutions for what poor countries should do to access energy. There's some some guilt there. But I think when we actually break down the analysis of what Bill Gates is claiming, which is renewables are not competitive in these countries today, we can say that that is almost categorically false. And, um, you know, I don't want to come across as someone who thinks that like throwing up a bunch of small solar systems and some wind farms is the f- way to fully tackle energy poverty. We're going to need a lot of large-scale power stations too, like some natural gas, geothermal, um, biomass, hydro, as you mentioned, even some advanced nuclear. And I, I am supportive of R&D in the type of advanced nuclear and recycled nuclear that Bill Gates is talking about. Um, but to pretend that fossil fuels are somehow like the moral economic choice is pretty deeply flawed. And it it ignores the delays in these plants, the high costs, the legacy carbon costs. I mean, we haven't even gotten to that, right? Like, think about, uh, I mean, this, the plant in South Africa that I was talking about is going to last until the middle of the century and emit more CO2 than 115 other countries. The one plant. And scientists are today telling us we need to ramp down fossil fuel consumption as quickly as possible to avoid a dangerous tipping point. And now South Africa is locking in more than four decades of extraordinary carbon pollution. Who's going to pay for that eventually? South Won't South Africans have to pick up that tab at some point? Obviously, between now and 2050, every country is going to have to be paying for their carbon debt in some way. And we those cost considerations are completely absent from this discussion.
1: Yeah, and Stephen, if we are... Counting the, sol- the social cost of carbon in everything we do, and if we've taken a moral position as a country that we want to reduce greenhouse gases and we are the wealthiest country, don't we have an imperative to then help others be able to develop cleaner solutions as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the other approach to take on this conversation, which I think Bill Gates misses by a mile, is just the balance of payments for countries. You know, when you look at a government like India, one of the reasons the rupee went from 44 rupees to the dollar to over 60 rupees to the dollar in 2012, 2013, is because of their fuel import costs. India doesn't have high quality coal in India or Enough diesel production. So they're importing these fuels and they're using their precious hard currency to do that. Same thing with Caribbean islands and most of Africa. Sure, Mozambique has extra coal and so does South Africa, but a lot of other countries don't. And so they have to import these fuels, which actually destroy their balance of payments, which means they can't really spend that money on other important uh, initiatives of their country. And so fossil fuels really kills these countries five different ways, from healthcare to development to their balance of payments. There's really no good things that are coming out of fossil fuels there.
0: And in India, which sort of botched the coal leasing in 2012, uh, an independent uh, auditor in India said that the country had lost $33 billion by allotting coal fields too cheaply. That was the money off of the backs of, of Indians, $33 billion. It's, that, it's,
2: a, it's absolutely one of the reasons fossil fuels work in many of these countries is people have figured out sophisticated ways to pay people off using fossil fuels.
0: And then quickly just t- to wrap up with some more costs – um, the Fraunhofer Institute has done some good analysis of the Middle East and North African region where solar resources are high, and they've shown that the LCOE for solar PV plants ranges from an average of $0.16 cents per kilowatt hour for all types of projects to $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour for large-scale PV plants. And by 2030, the researchers at the Fraunhofer Institute projected the average cost of electricity in the MENA region will fall to about five cents a kilowatt hour. You're not going to build the coal plant for that price.
2: No, you're not. And one of the comments, though, in the section is that solar obviously is not a 24 by seven Power source, but I do think that a lot of folks are looking like in Italy for instance they're looking at using hydro instead of actually using hydro as a twenty four by seven resource they're actually looking at it as as storage you know because you can actually turn it on and off based on um, when you need the power and then let the water sort of back up. Um, in the in the reservoirs, and so there's actually really sophisticated ways that people can run their entire grids to accommodate solar and wind at very high penetrations, which is I think what Emory Lovins was talking about in, in the last episode that I think people just don't uh, really um, believe or 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 focus on
0: All right uh, quick break here to recognize our sponsor, EGage Systems, which is a manufacturer of next generation energy meters it combines an energy meter data logger and a web server all in one device providing the user with instantaneous access to energy monitoring without any ongoing fees e is an ideal solution for several applications including sub metering demand analysis performance contracts solar energy systems lead projects and net zero buildings for more on our sponsor, eGage Systems, you can go to www.egage.net. Well, why don't we uh, head over to our second story. Uh, we've got a couple more coal-related topics to cover in this country. So we'll go to Mississippi first up, where environmental groups led by the Sierra Club have been battling Mississippi power over its 582-megawatt Kemper coal plant, which is expected to come online next year. Earlier this month, Mississippi Power, which is owned by Southern Company, agreed to a truce with the Enviros. In exchange for the Sierra Club dropping its legal challenges, the utility said it would close one coal plant, convert two others to natural gas, and also procure up to 100 megawatts of utility-scale solar and wind. And finally, Mississippi Power said it would put aside $15 for efficiency programs and agree not to fight net metering. This is huge for a state with virtually no renewables. Um, Catherine, your husband is director of the Clean Energy Program at Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. I'm sure you've uh, heard a lot about this battle and others. What can you tell us about this agreement in Mississippi?
1: Well, the best thing that he did was introduce me to Louie Miller, who heads up the Sierra Club efforts in Mississippi. And I spent a long time on the phone today with Louie. Boy, it is, it's is—it's amazing down there. The politics in their little fingers uh, would just blow uh, the city of Washington, D.C. away. It's amazing. Um, so there's this whole policy battle and there's also a political battle. So on the political side, just as background, all the commissioners, all the public utility commissioners in Mississippi are elected. And everybody is elected all at the same time and it's off your elections. So in two thousand fifteen, that's gonna be their big election year where their House, their Senate, their governor, and all their commissioners are up for election. So that just keep that in the back of your head because all these decisions in the end are gonna are gonna really Really drive the results of this election and, and it's and these are becoming election issues so Mississippi, as you said, is one of five states that prohibited net metering, one of five states in the United States. Now it is going to become a robust market for rooftop solar, which is pretty amazing um, they're waiting right now for an economic impact analysis to be done. Um, Synapse is doing it and it should come out in September and then that will help drive the rulemaking for this. But this is really about jobs, investment in the state. Um, this is going to create a whole new industry there. And this is so much of this is driven by exactly what we we're talking about in the first segment, which is about the price tag that this fossil energy plant has, which is right now $5.6 billion for a 582 megawatt plant, the most expensive power plant ever built in the US on a per megawatt basis, Um, the stockholders are having to uh, have a $1.6 billion in cost overruns taxed on them. Um, basically, the Public Service Commission has said, you know, we're, we're, our ratepayers aren't going to pay for this. This is insane. So um, this, uh, this whole settlement is really interesting because um, the settlement does create this market for clean energy, but also just the economics of the Kemper plant are just so bad that in and of itself, you know, the utility is pretty much bringing itself down.
0: Every time, every time we see a plant plant like this, it's always hundreds of millions or a billion dollar in cost overruns and months or years behind schedule. It's crazy. And I think one of you mentioned this in a previous podcast. You know, it's remarkable how things have changed for some of the enviros down in, say, the southeast, where they previously almost had no traction. And all of a sudden, renewables are competitive and it forces a utility like Mississippi Power To suddenly consider alternatives and realize that, hey, the alternatives are actually economic and maybe shutting down this plant or coming to some sort of truce isn't such a bad idea.
1: Yeah, and you know, he, what Louie told me is that the the alliances that they have are really atypical. So you have the Farm Bureau, the Poultry Association, the paper companies, the Tea Party, the NAACP, the enviros, everybody agreeing that this power plant is not a good idea for the citizens of the state. And they're all going to be working together to hopefully get a 30% state tax credit to do all kinds of really interesting renewable and clean energy projects.
2: So the way this stuff happens, which is fascinating to me is, you know, for anyone who's played tic-tac-toe, if you actually know what you're doing, it's almost impossible to lose that game, right? You always end up in a tie. But these utility companies are losing it tic-tac-toe. I mean, that's how bad they are here. This Kemper County facility, because it's raised rates by so much, has forced all of those people to get into a coalition with Sierra Club, who would normally never get into a coalition with Sierra Club. But the utilities have abused their power by so much that everyone is against them, including AARP in many of these states, because they're um, their members are on fixed incomes with Social Security, and the, their Mississippi power is raising rates by 13%, 20%, uh, depending on you know, from what time period. And so it's just one of these maddening things where we're winning, and the utilities are actually helping us win because of their incompetence. Hey, do any of
0: you know what the breakdown of distributed systems and utility-scale systems will be over here in Mississippi?
1: Um, I asked him that, actually, and he said he didn't know yet. So, But they're getting a lot of interest from a lot of companies, both the rooftop solar companies and um, the large developers. So he said right now it's all open and they don't really know how it's going to shake out. If well, you look
2: at Southern Company in Georgia, though, that, that deal was, the majority of it was utility scale and only the minority of it was rooftop.
1: Right.
0: I mean, that's part of a bigger trend, which GTM Research has been tracking. And there are like three gigawatts of utility scale solar projects in states that people didn't expect like utah georgia kentucky minnesota nevada you know they're all competing with natural gas prices uh and in the, in the first half of 2014 in a lot of those states ppa prices for these projects ranged from like five cents a kilowatt hour, kilowatt hour to seven and a half cents a kilowatt hour so depending on the bids here and the breakdown of the utility-scale stuff versus rooftop stuff, it's feasible that Mississippi could be getting large-scale solar at competitive prices or even cheaper than gas.
1: Well, what's amazing in this settlement, too, is that Mississippi power is not allowed to oppose anything. They're not allowed to appeal anything. And so no matter what comes out of this rulemaking, they have to go along with Yeah.
0: What does this say about Sierra Club's Beyond Coal strategy? I mean, they've helped partially shut down, it's like uh, 175, 180 coal plants around the country. I can't remember the exact number. But they're really working the renewable replacement angle here, which I'm sure uh, your husband is working on a lot, and which has worked in Mississippi. And they finally can come in with a positive message. Obviously, people are pissed off that the Sierra Club is... Going into these states and fighting these coal plants, but at the same time they have this positive message of uh, job creation and new forms of energy choice. Once these coal plants shut down, can you speak to that in any way, Catherine?
1: Yeah, I actually think that's new for them because they have been so focused on shutting things down and being in opposition. And some of the folks have told me this that that to try to switch to being for something is different for them. So now they have all these opportunities to really promote positive developments. And that's exactly what my husband does is like the, the what we do want side of things. Um, but I think for some of these state people who have spent their entire careers fighting um, fossil fuel, now they have to kind of change and they're working with all these different allies to make it happen. And I think it it's very positive, but it is new for them.
2: I also think that it's important to recognize where Sierra Club came from on this because they really have played this huge role. And it frankly came from a partnership between, you know, uh, Carl Pope when he was running the Sierra Club and Aubrey McClendon over at uh, Chesapeake Gas. Um, because what Sierra, Sierra Club noticed was a lot of utility companies were building new coal plants um, without – meeting the basic requirements re- required of them by law um, in, with EPA or local permits. And so actually by just doing a little bit of work, they could kill these coal plants. And when Aubrey heard about it, Aubrey thought it was great, gave them 20 million bucks. Um, and then Bloomberg took over and, uh, you know, been giving them $50 million chunks. And so I think the Sierra Club has played an extraordinary role here in making sure that the lawyers and, and the regulatory affairs people, et cetera, have the money necessary to fight this fight.
0: All right, well, speaking of fights, let's go to our third topic and discuss coal exports, where Sierra Club and a whole host of other national environmental organizations are very heavily involved. So last week, yet another U.S. coal export project was set back when the Oregon Department of State lands squashed a proposal from Ambri Energy to build a terminal designed to ship 8.8 million tons of coal to Asia yearly. There was a little climate angle to this decision. Instead, the state said the project would hurt local local tribal fisheries. Um, this is the fourth project blocked in recent years on the West Coast, where coal companies are desperately trying to build export terminals to boost demand for the resource, uh, because, of course, demand is dropping for coal in this country due to natural gas and the improving economics of renewables and flat demand. Uh, there are two other much bigger projects, however, that are still being considered in Washington State, which could boost coal exports by... 91 million tons each year that's huge compared to the 8.8 million tons of this uh, project that was scrapped so uh, what does the Oregon setback mean for these projects um, Catherine would love to get your view on the situation out there and um, perhaps the politics as well
1: well I'm not sure what the other what it's going to mean for the other projects but this is a big win um, on that was potentially, the, all of these terminals are potentially undermining all of the climate action plan and all the work we've been doing. Because um, what happens is the federal coal program that, you know, that on our federal lands, which Powder River Basin, it provides almost 90 percent of the coal from our federal coal program. Powder Ritter River Basin is a surface mining facility. It um, the price per ton of that coal is only $13 per short ton, whereas the coal in Appalachia is $63 a short ton. And even if you even if you look at you know the the heat rate and everything of those and their efficiency, it still is enormously undervalued. And so what it is is it's this really cheap coal that the coal companies like Peabody and Arch and those others are buying up. They're paying a really small 12.5% royalty, but then they're selling it at a much higher price overseas. So they're getting this huge boost from taxpayer, what is essentially – Taxpayer assets in that coal. Yep. And so it's being undervalued and it's causing environmental destruction because when it gets, what happens when you get something that cheap going into a country like China is it lowers the price on all the coal over there and then increases the use of coal in that country. So I think that this um, Boardman decision was big and, um, you know, hopefully the other ones will, will also be made in that, the same direction. Yeah, that's a crucial piece
0: of the analysis here. And it's, how much of that cheap coal will encourage new consumption additional consumption there are lots of estimates out there the center for american progress my former employer which has a vested interest in stopping or has been publicly wanting to stop these projects uh says that it could encourage roughly a 70% more coal use i've seen much lower estimates but it's probably in between somewhere certainly with um you know $13 per ton coal going into asia and getting $77 per ton, these companies are making a lot of money off of the very cheap, if not almost free land of taxpayers. And that is a huge piece of this, along with the climate arguments. Um, I think a lot of the environmental groups have tried to call attention to the um, auctions uh, from, through the BLM that basically only have one bidder and give the coal away very cheaply from taxpayer lands.
1: Yeah, I talked to Nitty Tacker from uh, Center for American Progress, who's the deputy director of their lands program, and she wrote this report um, that, you know, called attention to these. And I asked her, I said, well, what can we do from a policy perspective to change this? And she said the Secretary of Interior, Secretary Jewell, can raise the royalty rate without any additional congressional authority because it's surface mining. They can do this without a rulemaking. So she could raise that $13 a ton rate, and that would completely change the economics.
2: Well, so, you know, the I mean, the one thing I do want to point out here is a couple of things now. One is that, you know, John Kitzhaber, who's the governor of Oregon, came out publicly against this terminal uh, back in April, which it means a lot. And what you're finding is, is that Jay Inslee in Washington is still yet to come out against any of the coal plant projects in Washington state. So for those of our listeners who are in Washington state, I mean, it's time to hold Jay Inslee more accountable to his environmental roots. Didn't Um,
0: Kitzhaber get Inslee to sign a letter in protest
2: or? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that that Kitzhaber got, got uh, Governor Inslee to, to to co-sign a letter that was sort of against this deal because it's sort of on the border with Washington. And, um, and I think to join a more you know sort of progressive emissions uh, reductions portfolio on the West Coast, but the challenge with Jay Inslee is that he's so like yellow bellied about this stuff because he thinks he's going to lose some of his um, um, uh, labor support that he refuses to take an issue, and so he's just a wuss. And it's just such, it's so frustrating. And you know, and the thing is, we're winning. I mean, Sun Edison now has a higher market capitalization than Peabody Coal which is the largest coal company in the world.
1: But the labor issue is really false because Powder River Basin doesn't employ nearly as many as the Appalachian region which employs almost 60,000 people. Powder River Basin employs about 7,000. But what's happening is that if you increase Powder River River Basin you're just drawing jobs away from Appalachia. And so really it's really a false um, argument that you're losing jobs
2: yeah no but but uh, well this labor issue is on the terminals right and so washington state is still basically taking a very sort of hands-off approach to these terminals so that's why they're trying to build these coal export terminals out of washington state and that's all union jobs like at the ports um that's driving that and it's just it's sickening because jay insley supposed to be like our champion and for him to sort of be this sort of wishy-washy guy, like, it's just just sad.
0: Well, this is the real world, right? I mean, he wrote Apollo's Fire, which was one of the early big political books pushing the green jobs message. And uh, when you get in the real world, you're going to have to start making decisions that unfortunately impact employment issues in the in a bad way as well. You can't just have a bunch of great green jobs developed without impacting something else. And if we're going to deal with climate change, we have to say no to some things too. And so when, when you're in that position, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to write a book than it is to make the decision. Yeah, it's also about you know doing your job as a one-term
2: governor. I mean, he's just so desperate to win a second term that he's willing to sort of like be wishy-washy where when you see Brown back in Kansas or you see the governor of North Carolina, I don't like what they're doing there, but they're not being wishy-washy. And they're like, look, we got elected to shrink the size of government. We're doing it. And if you don't elect me to a second term, so be it. But like, you know, we're going to do what we came here to do. And time and time again, when we get environmental leaders that come into governorships, they sort of go straight to the middle as soon as they get elected, which is, you know, a horrible uh, precedent to set.
0: Couldn't agree more. I have seen very few people who are supposed climate hawks who actually make the tough decisions like this one. I mean, and this is becoming a big election theme. So just to wrap up on the, the politics side, we talked about this last fall after the elections, you know, the rail companies, the coal companies, the oil companies, there are, all of which depend on the expansion of railroad infrastructure and in these export terminals. They've dumped so far this year tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars behind local Republicans who want to see the terminals built. And then of course last year environmental groups put hundreds of thousands of dollars behind the candidates for the Whatcom County Council in Washington in order to influence uh, the decision for coal export terminals there. So Enviro see this as um, you know, one of the biggest issues, perhaps even bigger than the Keystone Pipeline. And you know, they're putting money behind the races, but I, I haven't quite seen them hold uh, Governor Inslee, t- hold him accountable.
2: No, they're really worried about saying anything negative about him it would, in the same way that the enviros wouldn't say anything negative about Obama until, like, you know, 2012 when the Keystone Pipeline thing came out.
0: All right. Well, that's the end, guys. Let's um, tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, uh, let's start with you.
1: You've been starting with me a lot this episode. All right. Fine. Jigger.
0: <laughs> we're going with you. Forget it. You lost your chance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to pull a Stephen Lacey story and uh you know, I don't know if you guys saw this but um yesterday China um at the official government level actually backed this idea that's been around for a long time around a global energy internet where you actually build transmission lines under the oceans and we share power around the world. Um and so this this one came from the chairman of the government-owned State Grid Corporation of China um saying that a worldwide you know, sort of high voltage energy transmission network would be interesting. Um, you know, I I'm not quite sure whether it's cost effective to do, but it's a very bold proposal, and I like bold, just like you were saying before, Stephen. Um, the one thing that's interesting though is that the easiest thing that they could do to really help themselves is actually to connect to Japan. But given all their issues with the uh, with the uh, the territorial rights, I'm not sure Japan's high on China's list to connect.
0: I have talked to way too many people over the years who want to develop transmission networks like this only to see them fail disastrously. So I have to say I have to take this with a lot of skepticism.
2: Oh, yeah, I think we should. I just think it's newsworthy because somebody so important as the chairman of the government-owned government State Grid
0: Corporation of China has said something. Absolutely. Catherine, tell us something we do <laughs> not know.
1: Okay. So um, you may or may not know the word inversions and what that means, but you probably have heard the story about Burger King merging with Tim Hortons of Canada and the stir that it's causing. And the reason it's causing a stir is that when two companies merge, the way our tax laws work right now is if you can move your headquarters – to a country that is not the United States, you get these huge tax benefits. And what does that have to do with clean energy? Well, this has become somewhat of an, of an election issue. And really, both parties are starting to come around on this to try to figure out how do you close the loophole on what's called these inversions. And um, if they do that, and if it is a real election issue, and they work in the however many 12 days they have uh, before they have to, when they come back in September and before they leave to run for their offices again, if they actually actually get something done, what this, what this reform would do would it w- is it would be an enormous revenue raiser. And what happens when you increase revenue is you're able to get other things done potentially. So I'm kind of keeping the flame, however small it is, lit for the potential of getting some of the extenders done if they raise revenue. So potentially maybe the wind production tax credit, bonus depreciation, some of the efficiency things or the Master Limited Partnership Parity Act. I feel like there there could be an opportunity if they do this. This, um, tax reform, and they raise revenue.
0: Wow, what a high minded reaction to this.
1: <laughs> I know. Uh, f- I know. I had to turn it into something, into making <laughs> it a lemonade.
0: Yeah, well, my reaction was almost throwing up because I saw that they released like a chicken wing donut, a buffalo chicken wing donut, and it was disgusting. So I'm glad that you're the intellectual on this one.
1: No, all the revenue is with coffee sales. Trust me.
0: Okay, um, my story's brief. You know, now that summer's winding down, we are seeing a lot of upcoming announcements from companies. And I'm already hearing of two brand new smart thermostats that are going to be launched uh, from startups in the next couple of weeks. And I'll be talking to those startups over the next few days. So I'll have a better sense for what they're trying to do. But in the early press materials I've seen, everyone's trying to be the next nest. And interestingly, uh, related to that, the retailer Lowe's just put out a survey showing that Americans are more interested in security than energy savings when it comes to the connected home. And we've seen other surveys that show similar findings, which is likely why Nest has bought up the security camera company DropCan and moved into smoke detectors. So uh, expect some more activity, some more competitors to Nest coming up. God knows if they can actually compete, though.
2: Yeah, I've got a good friend who works at Ecobee, and they're launching their their uh, their unit in the u.s i think they're out of toronto so um i agree this is a, a hugely exciting
0: space
1: yeah and we need more competition
0: okay that's all folks thanks for being here with us again this week as always you can head on over to com slash podcast for links to background stories we discussed on the show you can also subscribe to the podcast and leave us comments while there To connect with us directly, send me an email, lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. I will pass around your comments and questions to the team. Finally, a big thanks to E-Gage Systems for sponsoring this show. This is their last sponsored show. We really appreciate their underwriting support. And uh, I always appreciate my two esteemed colleagues here, which uh, is a compliment, but I suppose in politics is a way of subtly dissing people. Um, Catherine, we'll talk to you later. Have a great week.
1: Thanks. You did not diss me at all, and have a great long weekend.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Same to you, Jigger. Enjoy getting wet again with your family in the ALS bucket challenge.
1: <laughs>
2: I don't know if I'll do that again, but I uh, but I do think they're going to have a kiddie pool.
0: Have you seen the twenty one BuzzFeed ALS ice bucket challenge fails? No, no. <laughs> but it sounds it sounds like it's... the. Uh, I don't normally I don't like, like buzzfeed lists, but this one was extraordinarily funny. You should look it up.
2: I will. It sounds like the Darwin Awards. Yeah.
0: Twenty-one reasons why the ice bucket challenge needs to stop, I think it's called. <laughs> <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week.